0: Praise to him alone, John chapter 19, friends, turn with me there, the gospel of John, not the epistle, the gospel we continue in our Lenten study of John chapter 18 and 19, the beginning of the end of the life, the earthly life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Today we'll be looking at John 19 verses 17 through 27 and we'll be focusing on the crucifixion We started a couple of weeks ago with uh, the arrest of Jesus in the garden. We moved to the questions that were asked to him by Pilate and others as he stood to be on trial. And then we also last week heard of the sentencing uh, that Pilate gave. And today we read of the actual event of the crucifixion. We sing a hymn sometimes, most often on Good Friday. You probably sung it. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? And the, whoa, 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 yes, I was there. Well, the answer, the short answer to that question, were you there, is yes, every single one of us were there. We just sang that. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying wounds has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Your sin, my sin, put Christ on the cross. Today I want to focus on that. I apologize for my voice. I've had the flu all week. So I I will press on, I promise, with the good favor of the Lord Jesus. But let me just simply say the cross calls for our response, friends. Even our response, those of us who claim to have faith, who see this as an emblem of our faith and and the belief and the trust and the knowledge that Christ died there, hung there to do a work for us. But what is it that that work, what what was that work? I, I think many times we simply say this, friends, and this isn't altogether wrong, but we say Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And yes, that is true. It is true. But there's so much more to it. And that's what I hope that we will accomplish in seeing as we give our attention to this passage this morning. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 17. Hear now the very word of God. As the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, "'Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews.'" when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, each one of them, with an, uh, each one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. And this happened so that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, They divided my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. That's Psalm 22. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It is the word of the Lord. What do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands. Father, you are speaking to us today by your holy infallible and inerrant word, the word that reveals to us the person and finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that you would open our eyes to behold that yet again, to see the wonder of the cross today in this Lenten season as we prepare for Resurrection Sunday. We have much to be hopeful for a work, a mighty work that was accomplished. So please open our eyes to behold it and our hearts to receive it that we might live it out in our lives today and every day. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Please, friends, be seated. Rene Lacoste, you may not be familiar with that name, but he was a a tennis player, a well-known tennis player in the 1920s. He won many titles uh, playing tennis, not only in the United States, but around the world in France and in other locations as well. He was known for his tenacity on the court, his intensity, his passion for the sport. He became known as Le Crocodile, the Crocodile. To the point that he actually had a a, a little monogram on his jacket that he would wear before he would take off to play tennis, a little crocodile on the the left breast of his jacket. In 1929, he decided to start a, a men's clothing shirt line, a tennis shirt line, and it bore the little crocodile on the left breast. In 1938, Izod picked up that same little logo, changed it a little bit, took away the crest and just left the, uh, the crocodile uh, because of the proceeds that Lacoste had been making over the sale of the shirts that just simply took completely off. But I wonder how many people. I wonder if you. I know I have not. I wonder if how many people have actually seen somebody wearing one of these little designer shirts, and they see that little crocodile on there, and they say, "Ah, I, I know the story. I know the story behind that little emblem of what what that crocodile is doing on your on your uh, shirt." It seems to me that we just see the crocodile and don't really know the story. I know my dear friend Bob Byma is a big golfer. He wears some Greg Norman stuff, the shark. And there's a shark sometimes on his shirt. And I can say to, I can say to Bob, I, I know the story. I know the story behind that shark because Greg Norman was known as the shark. But is true with Lacoste, with the crocodile. And yet many times we miss the story just simply looking at the emblem. Is that the way you look at the cross? You look at the cross and you see the emblem, you see what is before us, but you've missed the story behind it. You don't know all of the details of what it is that the cross displays. WE WEAR OUR JEWELRY AROUND OUR NECK. I TELL YOU, ARCHITECTS, EVEN THE ARCHITECT THAT DESIGNED THIS PARTICULAR BUILDING, BECAUSE IF YOU DO A BIRDS-EYE VIEW AND YOU LOOK DOWN WITH OUR transepts THAT WE ADDED, OUR NAVE uh, CREATES A CROSS FROM THE VERY TOP. ARCHITECTURE has captured a look at the cross, a passion for the cross. Jewelers have captured a a passion for the, the, the cross. We wear our things around our necks. We pin those crosses on our lapels and so forth. But how many people do we come in contact with? How many of us even here actually see the emblem but don't know the story of what the emblem represents? Now, that particular day, this day when Jesus was crucified, friends they would not have been wearing a cross around their neck or pinned on their tunic or a bumper sticker on the back of their chariot that had uh, a picture of the cross because the scripture clearly tells us the cross was not faith. It wasn't a picture, an emblem of faith. It was a picture, an emblem of failure. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The scripture says and so it, it, it was not back then a picture of an, em, an emblem of our faith, but it was an emblem of complete and absolute failure. So I wonder how many of us even today are the same way. This particular passage, this is what John uh, attacks. This is what John represents for us. John, John, a wonderful gospel writer that gives all of these beautiful pictures of imagery, And all of these comparisons, his book is filled with comparisons of light and darkness, good and evil, and faith and no faith over and over and over again. And we find the same thing right here in in the middle of John chapter 19. Scripture continues to point to who Jesus is here in his own earthly ministry at the end he continues to reveal who he is the son of God who came for the sole purpose that from the foundation of the world it had been decreed that he would be sent by his heavenly father to bear the sins of his people on the cross that we might live with him forever and forever. And so many of us look at the cross with with, uh, just an an emblem uh, and not know the story behind it. We have actually three different categories of people in this passage uh, by which then John compares again like he always does. And with each one of these three different individuals or groups of individuals, what John does then is he shows how Christ was our prophet, our priest, and our king. He uses one for each of the different groups to display, to reveal even more of who Jesus is. It's interesting, Oswald Chambers wrote this. Listen to this wonderful quote. He said, all of heaven is interested in the cross of Christ. All of hell is terribly afraid of the cross of Christ, while men are the only beings who more or less ignore the cross of Christ. It calls for our response because the response that you're going to see are from various locations to Jesus when he is crucified. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer, dear friend, is yes, you were. But were you there, right there, with your eyes fixed on your Savior who came and gave himself for you? Or were you at a distance Were you present but not in tune at a distance and completely disconnected? That's what we find in this passage. So let's look at it. The first one. It's interesting how it starts, the end of verse 16, beginning of verse 17. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. You'll remember that Jesus has been standing in front of Pilate. And Pilate has said two times now, two times, I find nothing wrong with this man. But the second time he said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do you a solid because you, you individuals are going to run to Caesar and you're going to narc on me. You're going to tell on me to where to the point that Caesar is going to be all upset with me. So he took, he took Jesus and he had him flogged. He had him beaten. We heard about that last week from Dr. Fowler. With those strips of leather and the te- the the bones that were tied into the strips of leather, uh, leather, as they as they whipped him and they beat him and they crushed that crown of thorns down on his head. And it now says that uh, standing before before the people, Pilate says, "Behold the man." We heard that last week. Look at the man. I've beaten the ever almost the ever loving life out of him. He, he, I find nothing wrong with him, and yet. For your sake, I did this to him. This can't we call it done? Can't we say we're done now? This man has done nothing wrong, and yet he has taken on all of this abuse. And what do the people do? What do the religious people do? They shout, crucify him, crucify him. And so now we find that it's out of Pilate's hands altogether. He makes the decrees. It's left the the religious people. It's left the Roman uh, leader. And now the soldiers have taken charge the beginning of our passage. Carrying the cross, Pilate has created a sign, had a sign uh, built and attached to the top of the cross that says Jesus of Nazareth, the the king of the Jews, It was the custom of that day for anyone who was to be crucified outside the city overlooking a large hill overlooking the city dump and the individual that was to be crucified, because this was not an emblem of faith, this was an emblem of failure. was paraded through all of the city streets, seen by everybody, and there was a sign that was placard either hanging around the neck of the individual or on a piece of the wood that they were going to be crucified on, declaring their, their sin, what it is that they were being crucified for. And so Pilate says, I I want this sign to be written. I want it to say, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's he's jabbing the Jews here, friends. you got to get the picture of this. They had one-upped him. They had said, I'm going to go to Caesar and tell on you if you don't do what it is that we want. So, So Pilate has Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and he has it written in three languages. He has it written in Aramaic, which is very similar to Hebrew, the the religious language. He has it written in Greek, which was the common language of the day, the spoken language. And he has it written in Latin, the language of the law, so that there would not be a place on any street that Jesus would be going down, that somebody would say, "What, what, what does the sign say? What is he being punished for? Everybody knew, as the passage tells us. Everybody was reading this sign. All of the people took notice of the sign. But notice where the chief priests are. They wanted Jesus crucified. They finally got what they wanted. And they are not following Jesus to Golgotha to see him crucified. Look at what the passage says. They are near the city. The place is near the city. And they're on their way to that particular place that's near the city. But the chief priests, verse 21, stay in the city they don't follow this sign that is being paraded through all of the streets, but they stay in the city, far away from the place of Golgotha, the cross, the crucifixion, what they wanted most of all so that they can protest to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews, but write that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. He actually speaks truth. He actually wrote truth. He didn't even know it. He was getting back at the Jews. He's thinking, you, you, you want me to say that he just claimed to be? Oh, no, no, no. I want everybody to know that you think you can one-up me? Ah, I'm going to trump you. I'm going to trump you with this placard. I'm going to make your life as difficult as you have made mine. He is the king of the Jews. Not even knowing that he is speaking absolute truth. Here is this first OFFICE THAT CHRIST EXECUTES. OUR CONFESSION TELLS US THAT. THAT CHRIST EXECUTES THE OFFICE OF A PROPHET, OF A PRIEST, AND A KING. AND HERE WE FIND A BEAUTIFUL PICTURE OF of THE SAVIOR'S FAITHFUL KINGSHIP. AND IT'S PRONOUNCED TO US BY AN UNBELIEVER. HE'S JESUS OF NAZARETH. HE'S KING OF THE JEWS. AND ALL OF SCRIPTURE OVER AND OVER THROUGHOUT SCRIPTURE WE HAVE FOUND THAT THIS IS TRUE. ISAIAH SPOKE OF IT IN ISAIAH 53. Uh, the psalm that we just quoted or, or read from here, they divided my garments from Psalm 22, speaks about, uh, about uh, Jesus' kingship. Peter preached about that before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3, that he is our king. Our confession asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? And the answer is by ruling and defending and restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That Christ, even without Needing a weapon or a great white horse was going to conquer the ultimate enemy, death, by giving us life. And he would do it as our faithful king by taking our sin on the cross and dying for that sin. Why then, friends, why then, friends, do we doubt? Many, so many times when life displays and hands us a, a sour grape or a sour apple, and a problem after a problem. And we begin to doubt the very promise of God that He doesn't have my best interest. He's not fighting for me, but He's fighting against me. My plan is much more important than His plan. I'm going to seek to implement my plan instead of resting in the complete sovereign plan of our Heavenly Father. Or even this, you've heard me say it before the Lordship controversy. I'll let Jesus be my Savior. But he will not be the king of my life. I am gonna be the master of my own domain. I do need a savior who will purchase a place for me in heaven. But this day to day living is all about me, it's not about him. If that is your life, my friends, then this emblem right there is an emblem of failure, not of faith, because of his kingship. He came and he conquered the ultimate enemy, your ultimate enemy that you will not die, but you will live for him, with him forever and ever in paradise. Look at verse 23. We find the second group of people from now the religious leaders. We return to the soldiers, and all we have, these four little words, the, the soldiers crucified, Je- when the soldiers crucified Jesus, I guess that's five, actually. And now, now, we're, now we're at the place of Golgotha, And the soldiers are there. They've made their way out of the city, outside the city, to the place of the skull where Jesus would be crucified. So they're close by the cross. These soldiers are close by. But notice their attention is not given to the cross. As this individual was paraded through town, there would be four individuals, four guards, one on each quarter of the front and each quarter of the back. And they would, their job would be to move the procession along through the city, to whip them when they dropped the cross, to even pick somebody else to pick the cross up, to keep this line moving. And they did that because these four places were actually appointed with perks. And the perks were whatever this individual was leaving behind we get, and so they wanted to get this guy onto Golgotha and they wanted to get him up on the cross so that they could begin to give their attention to the very thing that they were motivated by. And what was it? They were motivated by the things that he left behind. Now, every individual had five pieces of clothing sandals for his feet, turban for his head, a girdle, a tunic and an outer robe, five pieces of garment, garments, clothing. There were four, and so the passage tells us four individuals. They divided the four shares so that each one of them had something. But there was one piece that was remaining, and that one piece that was remaining was the inner the, 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 the tunic that was worn on the inside that you read about in Leviticus 19 that the high priest put on, the very first piece that he put on before he carried the sins of his people into the Holy of Holies to sacrifice for those. It was the garment closest to the body. And so now they have this seamless garment, one piece, and they say, let's don't rip it into fours. Let's let somebody win it. Let's do it by lots. And so they cast lots, and as we read in Scripture, it fulfills Psalm 22. That they would stand at the foot of the cross, and they would cast lots for my clothing. Here's my point, friends. They're not interested in Jesus on the cross. They're not interested in the cross at all. They're interested in what Jesus is going to give to them. Their attention is on material things. They are right there, close by the place of the cross And they are giving no attention to what's going on at all. To them we have the second office of the Savior that is identified for us. And that is the office of a prophet. Our confession asks, how does Christ execute the office of a prophet? He executes the office of a prophet by revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. They are, they are fulfilling Psalm 22, the very revelation that this one whose clothes you are going to fight over is the Messiah that has been promised from Genesis 3.15, the proto They are fulfilling scripture, the very thing, scripture, that reveals who Jesus is and what he has done. As our prophet, he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. All of scripture is a testimony to who Jesus is and what he has done for us, the final work on the cross. They are fulfilling scripture and giving absolutely no attention to it. Isn't that amazing? What's even more amazing, think about this. If you were the guy that got Jesus' sandals and you hang him on the cross and then the very next day you're walking through Jerusalem and your buddy says, hey, you got some new shoes. Where'd you get the new shoes? Well, I got them from that guy, you know, when a storm came in. And the earthquake came uh, and, and, and ripped everything in half, and the, store, the the blue sky turned black that day the, the The very ones that they were shouting, "Surely this is the the son of God, oh, those are his, you like them they look nice, i mean don 't they <laughs> they fit perfectly i wouldn 't even put them on my feet or hey, I love that uh, love that outer garment where'd you get that Oh, is that guy remember you know all that big hoopla the other day that guy who really was the king? <laughs> go fancy yeah it just is amazing to me they give absolutely no attention because the emblem the cross is is an emblem of failure not an emblem of faith so friends let me ask you are, are you in this relationship with your savior just to get something from him is it are things perfect with you when Jesus is doing everything that you you want Him to do for you? He's giving you everything that you're praying for. Is your prayer life like my prayer life many times? Okay, Lord, here's my list. Here, I need you to do this and this and this and this and this. in Jesus' name, Amen. Come on, give it to me. Isn't that the way we often live, times friends? If that's true, then that is, that's an emblem of failure to you. He has given you the greatest gift that you could ever imagine. And that is the gift of life, eternal, abundant, and free. And we're more interested in, I want this house over that house or this car over that car or my kids to quit causing me this problem or that problem. It's all about what we want. And we fail to heed the very words of Scripture that tell us why Jesus came. He came for the purpose of doing everything that Scripture prophesied that He would do to give us life with Him, to reconcile us with our Heavenly Father. Which drives us then to verse 25 and the third groups of people. And now look how John starts, near the cross of Jesus. See, he agrees with me. Hear (laughs) Near the cross of Jesus stood four women and a man three of the Marys, and a sister that we don't know her name, and the disciple, that John, uh, the disciple that Jesus loved, which is most likely John, the author of the gospel account himself. These individuals are near the cross, and their full attention is to the one who is hanging on the cross. They're not close by with a diverted attention, and they didn't stay back uh, in the city instead of coming to the place. But near the cross of Christ, there stood the mother of Jesus, her sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, along with John the Apostle. They were right there. And so the, the cross becomes an emblem of faith for them, not an, not an emblem of failure but an emblem of faith as Jesus goes on to say. Now think about that sign now that's over the top of the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and he wrote it in three languages, not only three languages to jab the Jewish leaders, but friends, this too is telling because Jesus is the savior of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The gospel that saves us in the United States is the gospel that saves the guy in the deepest, darkest parts of Africa. It is the same gospel that saves. We are so prone, listen friends, we are so prone to internalize at this age of enlightenment that I, here is the universe and here's me <laughs> right in the center of it and we talk about He is my personal Lord and Savior. And he must be. He needs to be. It is true. Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior. But he is not just your Savior. He is our Savior. For all of those who love the Lord Jesus and long for his appearing because they have been given the gift of faith. And that number is a number greater than we can count and it is of every tongue, tribe, and nation. He puts us into community. Look what he does. Jesus on the cross says, Dear woman, here is your son. You're looking at me. But here is the hope of the gospel that you're not alone in this life. Here is your new son. And son, here is your mother. And his new mother comes to live with him in community, in his house from that day on. It's not just simply you and Jesus alone, but it's Jesus and us, the church, the new Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of his individuals, all of his elect people who come to saving faith because of the gift of faith that he gives to them in the finished work of of the cross. We are so prone to say, Jesus died for my sins, and he did. But on that cross are all of the other shuns, reconciliation, redemption, propitiation, expiation, all of these fancy words. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for our sin. But Jesus also took away the wrath that you deserve by dying on the cross for your sin. He also reconciled you back to your heavenly Father that you were once estranged from God and now you're one with the Father that you stand in His presence and you worship Him week after week because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's more than He died for you. He gave everything for you. What a Savior. What a gospel. And this is our priest who now reconciles us. A priest stands between sinful people and a holy God. And he offers as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was his life. How did Christ execute the office of priest? By offering up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God. It's so much more than he died for you. He died for you that you will never, you will not bear the wrath that you deserve. You have a relationship with one another in covenant community. And what we treat the way, the way we treat one another so many times, it's, it's not an emblem of our faith, it's an emblem of failure because we just fail to love one another as we've been loved by Christ. It's a beautiful gospel that calls for our response. There are three of them here and may it be that we find ourselves verse 25 and following that we are near the cross of Christ and he is reminding us of all of the benefits that he has given to us in the finished work right there. The Three Crosses, a, a painting by Rembrandt I don't know if you've seen a copy of it or you've seen the real one perhaps for that, that matter but if art critics explain this, this picture that 's been painted by Rembrandt of the three crosses, and they, they direct attention to the, the expression on the face of the Lord Jesus, and then they move their way sorry <laughs> then they move their way out to look at the faces, the expressions of the Roman soldiers, and look at the expressions of the women that are at the, the bottom, and then they pan off to one side and they say, they're in the shadow of the cross." There is a resemblance, a picture, a painting, a face that is Rembrandt himself. He painted himself in the, in the painting, the three crosses, because he understood that it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that put him there. And so we see even Rembrandt himself put himself in the painting with this expression in response to what Jesus had done him. Were you there when they crucified our Lord? Yes, you were. But where were you? Were you back in the city protesting? Were you close by, giving no attention? Or were you right there, absorbing all that had been accomplished for you by a Savior who died on the cross that you might be set free. It calls for your response, loved one, today because it's a matter of life and death. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us such a sweet gospel. We shall never grow tired of hearing it Oh, Lord, it is the beautiful gospel, the the greatest news that we could ever hear. Thank you for this finished work that you've done for us. Thank you, Lord, that that you reveal it to us in your word by the power of your spirit. And, And now even through your word proclaimed and the sacrament that follows, you remind us over and over and over again what it is that you have done to secure for us, to accomplish for us that which we could never accomplish ourselves. So seal it to us today, Lord, and change us because of this gospel. Change us completely that we might live it out in word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen.